Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up these men. Wait, I'm sorry. To tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar left to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, hey, good morning. Peace be with you. One of the great uh, Christian writers of the last century, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he spoke of something that he called the wish dream. Uh, the wish dream, is that a little echoey? Jackson's on it. The, the wish dream, he actually was writing in German, and so the English translator didn't know what word to use, so he used the phrase wish dream, and that's what we have in his books today. But in the wish dream, Everything is as it should be. Uh, the wish dream is the ideal of, of life. And in the wish dream, everything is, is pure happiness. Everything is peace. Everything is contentment. Everything is meaningful and satisfying. In the wish dream, there's no pain. There's no affliction. There's no sickness. There's no loneliness. In the wish dream, our, our friends are always there for us and never let us down. In the wish dream, our marriages are always happy and easy and satisfying. In the wish dream, our, our kids are always well-behaved and fall asleep at the right time and stay asleep until the right time. In the wish dream, our work is always satisfying. It always fulfills our deepest longings for what we hope for in our work. In the wish dream, there is no suffering. And I think of the words of Michael Scott, when he had a near-death experience, I saw my life flash before my eyes. I was married, I had four kids, I was rich, and I was happy. And the wish dream, we've all fallen prey to it. We've all experienced the wish dream, either because we're still trying to figure out when it's going to actually come true for us, or because we can remember the time and place that it died and we buried it beneath six feet of cold, dark earth. In fact, my book that I'm writing on Life in Your 30s is called Burying the Wish Dream Six Feet Below the Cold Dark Earth, Over a Million Sold. 
But the wish dream, we have all experienced this. We have all seen the wish dream slip through our hands. We've all been victims of it. And I wonder why. Why is it that we have this idea that life should be ideal, that it should be perfect, that it should be satisfying? Why do we hold out hope that it's going to be better than we've experienced it in the past? Could it be that we are actually made for such a world? Could it be that, that all this pain and suffering in the world feels, feels so foreign to us because we were made for a different world? This morning, we're looking at the topic of pain and suffering, and we're ending this summer series on enjoying God, where we've looked at his attributes and his character. We've looked at his love and his goodness and his glory. We've looked at his faithfulness. We've looked at his wisdom. But I think it's important as we, as we wrap up this series that we ask a few hard questions of God and of his word. And the three hard questions that came to my mind, number one, why, if God is so good and so powerful, why is there still so much pain and suffering in the world? And then number two, a question that I've asked, and I'm sure you have as well, where is God when it hurts? And then number three, how do we enjoy God? How do we enjoy him through pain and suffering? Not to enjoy the pain and suffering, but how do we enjoy God through the pain and suffering? And so the first question is, why is there so much suffering in the world? To be human is to face suffering. In the hour or so that we gather, hundreds of, of people around the world will die. If not, thousands of people will die. Over the course of 24 hours across the world, more than 100 children will be killed violently. Hundreds of people will die from car accidents and thousands will die from cancer. Is that on? I could lose this. In our, in our prayer of lament, our congregational prayer, we acknowledge the deep hurt in our own country, across the communities of our countries that have just faced another round of, of shootings. Everywhere we look, there seems to be more pain and suffering. And it's to the point where it's easy to be desensitized to it, that every time we turn on the news, we see another horrific story. And if you're like me, I just want to turn it right back off. Not to say nothing of all the poverty Abuse, illness, oppression, injustice, racism, natural disasters, all the other causes of profound suffering in our world. One philosopher has written, taking life seriously means that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, the rumble of panic beneath everything. And there's an old uh, movie, if you've seen The Princess Bride, there's a wonderful line in The Princess Bride where a character says, life is pain, anyone who's saying differently is selling you something. And I think often when I look at, at the teaching of the Christian church, I think often we, we can try to present the Christian life as something that's almost completely free from suffering. There can be a teaching within the Christian church that says, if you become a Christian, the amount of suffering you face in this world will decrease. You'll find new meaning and satisfaction in life. Your relationships will be better. Your marriage will be better. Your work will become more satisfying. You'll get sick less often. All of your suffering will begin to lift from your shoulders. 
It's as if we're saying if you become a Christian, your wish dream will finally come true. But of course, the scriptures don't teach that, and the scriptures don't leave us alone in our pain and suffering. Suffering is one of the main themes of the Bible. Beginning in Genesis, we see how evil and brokenness came into the world. Through Adam and Eve's original sin in the garden, this whole world of brokenness was open to us. As a curse came down on us from the original sin, so now all of us have been raised in a world that knows only brokenness, only pain, only suffering. The Bible actually gives the most complete account of how this pain and suffering exists in our world. Exodus shows us even that God's people will face pain and suffering as the Israelites are are enslaved in Egypt, and then even after they're freed from Egypt, they continue to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Three Old Testament books, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Lamentations, have suffering as their main theme. Two New Testament books, Hebrews and 1 Peter, are focused primarily on the topic of suffering. And most of all, the central person of the scriptures, Jesus Christ, is called the man of sorrows. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the Bible is as much about suffering as it is about anything else. And Christianity and the Christian scriptures give us a fuller picture, a a multidimensional picture of suffering. Because the Bible doesn't just give us quick platitudes or stories that all have happy endings, the Bible actually gives us a rich and a deep experience of the pain of the world that we actually get a better picture of why suffering exists and how to respond to it in the scriptures than anywhere else. And so the question, why is there so much suffering in the world? It's because we are living in a broken world. We are living in in a fallen world a world that is sort of torn between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, which is being established on earth even now after Jesus' life and death and resurrection and this old order, this old kingdom of darkness that still exists. It's important to remember what God has promised in this world and what he hasn't. And he hasn't promised us a life that's free from pain and suffering. I know I I have, and most of you have, you've come to experience suffering not on a theoretical level, not on a philosophical level, but on a deep and personal level. I've told some of these stories before, but my earliest memory as a child is of pain and suffering. When I was six years old, we were awaiting a new child, the fourth child in our family. As we went up to the hospital, we could only see our little sister through the glass of the ICU. As a six-year-old, it didn't make any sense, but over the next few days, as my parents returned home with an empty car seat and explained to us that Amy had not survived her first few days. I didn't understand at that time at six years old, but I understood that things would, would never be the same in our family. And so we experienced this cloud of grief over our family. It felt like being almost labeled by our, our church and our school and our community as, as a family that had lost a child. And so growing up in this, this pain and, and with this dark cloud over us, it, it changed me. And then as many of you know, when I was 16, my older brother was 18 and had just gone off to college. He went to, we were in Kansas City at the time and he went to Truman. And he was coming back for uh, the first weekend uh, in the fall. 
and we hadn't heard from them all day. We got a call from here at the university hospital in Columbia, and they said, there's been an accident. You need to come down here. And so we arrived. We went into that little, you know, the beige room. I call it the bad news room. And the surgeon came in and said, there was nothing we could do. The accident was fatal. And at that age, at 16, being faced with losing the, the most important person in my life and understanding the, the pain and, and the hardship of life at that age, it changed me as I know suffering has changed you in moments of life as well. Having to go through the end of high school and kids don't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. But experiencing the, that grief at that time, that formative time in my life, it changed me. It did something deep within me that I think is, has lasted ever since. For whatever reason, my own body has absorbed the pain. It happens often with childhood drama, trauma that our, our body can absorb these things, and it turned into insomnia for me. It turned into depression and chronic pain and fatigue. There's a suffering in this world that's so deep that it exists even within our own bones and muscles. And this is real pain. It's not a, an academic thing. It's not philosophical. It's what we feel day in and day out. And so that leads us to the second question. Where is God? Where is God? It hurts. And speaking about pain and suffering, I like using the image of Daniel 3, the fiery furnace. It's an image that the scriptures use often. It's used in the Old Testament and then again in the New Testament as a sort of illustration for the, all the different forms of affliction and suffering that we face. Now, fire, of course, is a dangerous thing. Fire is something that, that can consume an entire forest. A, a single spark can, can burn down your house. Fire can take your life in an instant. And so we know that fire is a dangerous thing, and yet at the same time, fire, if it's used appropriately, if it's used wisely, it's actually a wonderful thing. Fire can, can refine a metal. It can shape a piece of clay. It can warm your home. Fire, as, as it did for us last night, it can take a, a big hunk of red meat and turn it into a beautiful plate of hamburgers as we have three generations gathered around the dinner table. What began as just a, a, an immature hunk of meat became a mature meal for all of us. And so what fire does, if it's used rightly and with wisdom, fire refines, it purifies, it beautifies. Fire matures things. And in the same way, the scriptures show us that that is one of the roles of pain and suffering in our lives. That even though, yes, it hurts, it's, it's extremely painful and real in the moment. Over the time, it's one of the things that God uses to refine us, to shape us, purify us, beautify us, mature us. And I love the, the prayer in Daniel 3 when these godly Israelites respond to King Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I mean, before the most powerful man in the world, that's an awesome response. We don't even need to defend ourselves to you. He's, they say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from you. So they know that God can choose to save them. Just as we know that God is all-powerful, that he's sovereign, that he's good, that he's merciful, that at any given time he can remove the suffering and affliction from our lives. And yet their prayer is complete. It's, it's trusting. Verse 18, they say, But even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. 
Now, of course, God does save them. It wouldn't be a great passage to use this morning if he didn't, especially with some of the kids in the room, but God does save them out of the fiery furnace. But even if God didn't, just as he often doesn't remove the hardship in our own lives, he is still good. We might rightly ask, what are the purposes of suffering? And there's a chapter, a a book that I've mentioned a couple times in this series called Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and there's a chapter at the end of the book that's called These Inward Trials. And a, and a friend gave it to me and recommended it to me, even though I had read it years before, but in a time of, of an intense suffering when we were living in Louisville, a friend reminded me of that chapter, and I think I would say it's probably the most influential chapter of any book I've ever read in my life, outside of the scriptures. But Packer talks about this, this cruel teaching that becoming a Christian makes everything in your life easier, that you stop sinning, that it, you're suddenly equipped to, to find your deepest meaning and calling in life, and everything happens from there. You're able to change the world. The wish dream comes immediately true. But what Packer says is that it, God doesn't make our circumstances easier. If anything, he makes them harder. He says, dissatisfaction recurs over relationships. Temptations and bad habits hang on for dear life. In fact, it's as we grow in Christ that he exposes us to more and to more so that he might refine us and mature us. Packer writes, how does God in grace accomplish this purpose of maturing us? It's not by shielding us from assault, from the world and the flesh and the devil, not by protecting us from burdensome in frustrating circumstances, but rather by exposing us to all of these so as to drive us to cling to him more closely. The Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock, a firm defense, a sure refuge and help for the weak to drive home the point that we are weak and that we must learn the secret of the faith to wait on the Lord. C.S. Lewis once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. Are we getting weather alerts? Are we all right? (laughs) We'll be good. It's safe in here. I think my experience has been, and I'm, I'm guessing this has been your experience as well, that when you look back over the course of your life and you said, when, when have I been the closest to the Lord? When have I felt the Lord's presence most, most deeply? My guess is that it's not in the moments of, of great accomplishment. It's not right after the promotion. It's not after the seasons of, of ease and comfort. It's in the moments of pain. It's in the seasons of loss. The time where you don't understand what's happening and you either, you're even crying out to God for understanding. You're crying out and feeling like he can't even hear you and yet you're actually crying out to him. You're actually filling up your notebook with prayers because of the pain, because of the hardship. One of my mentors says, everybody either grows by pain or by prayer and nobody gets there by prayer. I think that's been true in my own life. And so now when I ask, where is God when it hurts? My answer is that he's he's closer than ever. And my experiences, whether it's losing my brother and crying out to God or or growing into adulthood and, and marriage and family and ministry, 
seeing all of those wish dreams die one after another, but finding God's presence to be so much better. He's been more real to me in in the tears and in the pain than in the laughter and the peace. And so if the first thing is that suffering exists because we live in a broken world, and the second thing is that God is still with us, maturing us in the fire, the third question is how do we enjoy God? How do we enjoy him through this pain and suffering? And the first thing I would say is to remember. Remember that we are not fighting for victory. We are not waiting on a victory, but instead we are fighting from victory. We are waiting from victory. We know that our Lord has been crucified and risen and reigns today in a victorious way and that we too already have the victory. And so in pain and suffering, we're not waiting for victory. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. And it changes the way that we view our circumstances in this world. When we know that our enemy has already been defeated, though he, he hangs on, it's as if we're in a, in a battle and we've received word over the radio that we have won the war and that the news is it's spreading around the world and yet there's still this enemy on the battlefield approaching towards us. They haven't gotten the news yet. And yet we know that we are now fighting, we are now waiting from victory. And so the first thing is to remember, and the second thing is to trust. When our kids were younger, especially our our middle son Jude, he was the hardest one to get to sleep. Some of you are right in the middle of this, and this is real suffering. But when he was 18 months, two years old, he literally could not go to sleep on his own. I mean, he still barely sleeps, but at the time we tried everything. Everybody gave us their tips and their techniques, and none of them worked. Literally, the only way we could get this kid to sleep in the afternoon and then again in the evening thank you, was, was to hold on to him and simply outlast him. For at least an hour, every single night, he would cry. One of us would hold him. He would kick. He would scream. He would try to force his way out of our arms. The only thing we could do was absorb the blows to simply wait until he would fall asleep. And at the time, I remember thinking, doesn't he understand that sleep is for his good? Doesn't he understand that he needs this? He can't function properly without this. You can't reason with an 18-month-old, and especially not when they're tired and grumpy. But we're operating on different levels of understanding. He's, he's a child. He doesn't understand yet that this sleep is good for him, that it's necessary necessary for his maturity and so he kicks and screams and we absorb the blow and hold on because we know that morning is coming in the same way our own father holds us when we kick and scream against him when we don't understand why on earth this could possibly be for our good and it's not to say that God brings these hard things in our lives to punish us, not to teach us a lesson. He doesn't take our loved ones from us to, to get something out of us. But it does seem to be clear that he allows a lot of pain and hardship in this life. And yet he's with us. He's holding us even now. In the darkest moments, we might feel his embrace more than any other time. And so remember, trust, and then the last thing is hope. If I'm honest, a lot of times I I do wonder, is this all really true? Especially in the hardest times and pain and suffering, is this really true? I mean, can we really trust these 
these scriptures, that they're honest, that they're good? Do Jesus' words make sense? Are they cohesive? Is this really making a difference in my life? Can we really base our lives on the promises of his word? And even this week, it was funny, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I had a moment where I couldn't remember if, if that, you know the phrase, he will wipe away every tear from the eyes? I couldn't remember if that was actually in the Bible or if I've just read it in like story after story. I've read the Jesus Storybook Bible to our kids so many times. I was like, that is actually in the scriptures, right? That's not just in the Storybook Bible. So I didn't have to like Google it or anything. That'd be really embarrassing. But I went to Revelation 21. I was like, man, this is even better than I remembered. John receives this revelation of the end of times, and it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. We have eternity set on our hearts, Ecclesiastes says. And even though we can't understand what God has done from beginning to end, we have this eternity within us longing for a better life longing for a life without pain and suffering, as if we can feel it within our bones that things are not as they should be. And the scriptures give us such a realistic view of suffering, but it also gives us the good news that one day this suffering will come to an end. The best news of Christianity is not just that we can walk with God through the furnace, but that God actually walks with us in the furnace. In Daniel 3, I love the image of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fire, but it's there in the fire that a fourth member is seen. And the guards ask themselves, didn't we just throw three men in? Why is there a fourth one in the flames? And he looks like a son of God. And the biblical scholars agree that whenever this phrase is used, the angel of the Lord, that that's not just an ordinary angel. It'll say an angel, but when it says the angel of Yahweh, almost everybody understands that to be an early appearance or manifestation of Christ. It's as if the Son of God is, is sort of breaking his own rules. He knows that he's not supposed to come yet. It's the Old Testament, but he breaks through and he shows up in a few times in places. In the middle of this fire, he goes to be with his friends and to protect them and to save them. It's miraculously in the presence of Christ. The men are not burned, they're not consumed, but rather they get to be in the presence of Christ and they're unharmed. And this is the ultimate illustration of the gospel that in Christ, God has actually entered the flames of our world. He has actually entered the furnace. He has felt our pain. That in Christ, he has come and he has faced every single temptation, every affliction, every grief, and even more so than us because he has endured it all, even to the point of death on the cross. And it's because he has risen from the grave that we know that he has power over it. And it's because he has risen that we know anytime we find ourselves in the furnace now, 
Anytime we're facing the fire of affliction, it's not so that we would be harmed, not so that we would be consumed, but so that we would be refined, so that we would be matured, made even like Christ. And so we can ask, where is God when it hurts? He is with us in the furnace. He is closer than ever. And one day we will be with him where he is. We will be home. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. Everything will be as it should be. And even though the wish dream may have finally died, we discovered that something far better was true all along. Let's pray.